You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. In a moment, it seemed, maybe the push of some big plastic button. Everything changed in American politics. Ronald Reagan is determined to put killer weapons in space. The Soviets will have to match us, and the arms race will rage out of control. There's a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Orbiting, aiming, waiting. Some people say the bear is tame. Others say it's vicious and dangerous. Since no one can really be sure who's right, isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? When work brings on a big boom of a headache, I reach for BC headache powder. That's the... the response time to fire so short. There'll be no time to wake a president. It was once about a, a time that to be a Republican in this area of the country felt a little bit by a bit like being Gary Cooper in high noon. Out, outnumbered in a big way. Orbiting, aiming, waiting. A new president, totally different ideas, new faces, new policies, new words even, a new approach to the press, the sour old men, as the Secretary of State called them at the time. The Democratic incumbent had been leading, or at least tying in the polls for much of the election year after all. The Republican candidate was so unconventional, so upsetting to many in his own party for his rightward visions on women's rights and a big stick notion of foreign policy. So outside the mainstream, even GOP state chairmen, a majority of them, found him too simplistic. One magazine called him the candidate from Disneyland. Democrats said he was in over his head. GOP operatives worried that his supporters, a mix of Democrats and Republicans, were polling as not really loyal to either party. But he loved that. He lashed out at the buddy system, the bureaucracy, the lobbyists, the Congress that caused all our problems. Following the advice of his campaign manager, don't get drawn into a numbers game. And his pollster, don't get into a debate about your use of facts. Americans don't care about that. They want an authority figure. Confirming this, perhaps, Time magazine, with a colorful drawing of the American voter's mind on its cover, said, The best way to describe politics in America was fragmentation, decentralization, and disarray. The party bosses are gone, and there's nothing to replace them. And polls? A majority of voters felt that... We were better off in the old days. 71% of them felt the things that their parents stood for were going away before their very eyes. 
two-thirds said that they hated today's fast pace. And so it was in 1980. Democrats were fighting among themselves a bitter primary, not just the discussion of issues, how much money to fund health care and education, but a bitter fight for the soul of the party. Kennedy versus Carter. The convention was bitter, the tension palpable. Both sides knew that if the other won, they'd lose the election. But now in the general election of 1980, unity meetings were being held. Vice President Walter Mondale was meeting up with Ted Kennedy and friends, and all expectations were that that Democratic coalition would hold in November, especially since the Republican candidate was not equipped to be president. One Democratic staffer said, he's doing our work for us. The morning of the election, a few papers still said, too close to call. It wasn't. It was a real callable election, as it turned out. Time Magazine again. Half the election-watching parties in the nation were over before the guests arrived. A savage repudiation of the incumbent party. It's unbelievable. It's a revolution, said a staffer in Ted Kennedy's office. It's a total reversal. Change is going to be drastic, said one in a moderate GOP senator's office. Call them proto-snowflakes? The upending, not just in election, but in the grammar, the syntax of politics, the rules of what you could do and not do, what you could say and not say. The president, not a believer in traditional media, a reader of right-wing news magazines like Human Events and religious TV shows like The 700 Club, a radio talk show host himself in the 30s and then again in the 1970s. When it worked with people like Shafley and Helms, on the right side of the GOP party. Others might call them the fringe at this time, changing the conversation. The greatest evil is not done now in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not even done in concentration camps and labor camps. In those, we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clear, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. Changing the conversation about the two main superpowers in the world, the U.S. and the USSR, or Russia, as we probably would have said it then, always a rival Sometimes an aggressor, sometimes a bad player, worthy of condemnation on the world stage and by the American president, but now was an enemy and eventually would become an evil empire. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all, label both sides equally at fault. To ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding, and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. Big stick, tough talk, holding a firm line. The things you heard were just different than you would have heard before. Our weakness seduced the Soviets. France is subversive. Detente. 
was a perilous extreme of complete relaxation. Nuclear superiority means you have to convince them you're willing to use it. Ignore the pacifists. There's only one military-industrial complex, and it's in Moscow. On the domestic front, contraception should not be the first line of defense against teen pregnancies. A call for a sagebrush rebellion to take federal land back and give it to the states. The Peace Corps, was hinted, might be converted into a quasi-intelligence service in third world countries where it operates. The director saying, some liberals may not like me. These are the kind of comments coming from the president, secretaries, undersecretaries. I don't even know what to say about this election. So said rocker Bruce Springsteen at a concert in Arizona the day after the election of 1980. His next album would be a bitter, desaturated trip telling a series of depressing American stories. One about a serial killer, another about a kid whose family can't afford a new car. One called Born in the USA about a vet who bemoans his treatment. He removes it from the album and saves it for later. But it wasn't just the boss who felt the change. The nation felt the change. Vivid, high contrast, personal. Nations on the map at this time colored in bright red to denote that they were the opponents. With missiles aimed at, it seemed, every American town and city. Not just a problem for the nation, not just something that you saw on the TV that might be very bad politics, but a problem for you. Your own destruction tied to politics. And our president who spoke of what might have been a strategic competitor, rivals, bad players perhaps, were now called out in Pentecostal language, evil, immoral, a push for a large increase in military spending to combat it. A Congress eager to please the election victor. Few remaining Democrats, afraid about the 1982 election, Speaker Tip O'Neill and others heckled at airports by supporters of the new president. A Secretary of State authoritarian, even Nixonian, by some accounts, drastically firm on diplomatic communications, smash-mouth superpower relations. A U.N. ambassador considering herself to be in the Alamo in the U.N., fighting off the world. A budget director armed with a heartless calculator, big binders and big lens glasses, who had a memory of thousands of federal budget programs and line items and wanted to cut everything he could, including his own sister's job. An interior secretary determined to develop public lands. An EPA administrator, name of Gorsuch, who laid off 30% of the staff and cut a quarter of the budget. A tough-talking national security advisor in cowboy boots. A president, it seemed, making constant trips to the Western White House, away from Washington, D.C., to sign bills with hills in the background. A small local hotel transformed to accommodate the communications equipment. The Russians dutifully moving their nuclear subs to the Pacific to adjust to the new president's location. As of now, I am in control here in the White House. 
pending return of the vice president and in, in close touch with him. If something came up, I would check with him, of course. I'm in control here. It doesn't matter how much you study Al Haig, and it's probably not a lot if you're like most people, the Secretary of State from 1981 to 1982, briefly as it would turn out under the Reagan administration, might not have seemed so in 1981, but he'd be out in less than a year. Yet the words, clumsy as they were in that moment, the moment of Reagan's attempted assassination in 1981, were defensible, especially because he did say in the White House was where he was in control, and he kept the president in charge until he ceded power to the vice president. No one wanted to go on the TV and say no one was in control. Hague's statement is defensible, but it was clumsy, and to many in a year, did represent how, in fact, Haig felt about his position as Secretary of State. He was in control on foreign policy. Indeed, he told the president the president needed a kind of vicar. The way he phrased it was, you need a single person who can manage all of the views of your advisors, integrate those views. I'll look to you, Al, is what President Reagan said. And as Haig went over what he understood, he nodded several times. Dick Allen, the national security advisor, was in the room. And he noted that while Reagan nodded, Reagan often did this as an indication that he has heard you. It was not agreement at all. But Haig took it as such. He considered himself not just Secretary of State representing the United States, but in charge of foreign policy. He pushed for a much tighter relationship with the state of Israel than we had had, moving from alliance to strategic partnership. And in doing so, may have paved the way for their actions in the Golan Heights and in Lebanon. In Lebanon in particular, Haig told the nation that if you move, you move alone, but he didn't condemn the action or express that Americans would try to stop it. This was a bit farther than Reagan likely would have wanted. And according to Israeli sources, it gave them a green light in what they wanted to do. He pushed an ultra-hard line in diplomacy with the Soviets. They weren't getting anything until they made changes. Even at the ambassador's car, when it arrived in the underground garage that for so many years he had used to arrive at the White House in some secrecy. Under Haig's watch, his limo was turned around. He tried and failed to negotiate the Falkland Islands War, ended up dealing with an Argentine foreign minister who had really no power within the junta. And he made a stupid comment, inexplicably, that said the U.S. did not have a great relationship with China. No one knew what he was talking about, and he had no facts to elaborate it. It didn't take long for stories in the newspapers about friction between the Reagan team and Al Haig to appear. He didn't like Chief of Staff Jim Baker, Edwin Meese, Attorney General, nor Mike Deaver, key aide to the president, seemed to be in a troika running the show. 
One of the most shocking things that occurred is in a national security meeting, still classified what he said, but it's alleged that he advocated the bombing of Cuba. That shocked even conservatives in Reagan's administration. And so the first face of the Reagan administration on foreign policy in those beginning months, a choice now known years later that was made to placate Nixon, who is still involved in an advisory level with Republican presidents who was calling Reagan, he calling him back. Haig was gone in little more than a year. Haig's short stint reminds us that the early years of the Reagan administration was kind of a spinning wheel, leaking staffers, frantic meetings, mixed messages, early wins in Congress, and then some losses and a lot of friction between camps in the White House. Unauthorized disclosures may have aided Haig's downfall, probably did. And it might have been thought that In this new type of White House, leaks, unauthorized disclosures just seem so establishment. The traditional passing of information from suited officials to the journalist, perhaps, over a little bourbon, would never happen with such a tight ship. But it happened. To the extent Reagan would soon decry publicly about the unauthorized disclosures the national, of national security material that has become a major problem in the U.S. government. Leaks, leaks, what to do about them. And so Reagan decided to get ahead of it, to implement a polygraph testing for all on his team who had access to such information. Of course, this story leaked to the press, and they had a field day with it. The polygraph policy didn't last very long. After Reagan's chief of staff, James Baker, found out about it, he had been leaving the White House, rushed back to the White House, found Reagan eating with Secretary of State George Shultz, Haig's replacement. Normally, as Baker said, it was not his policy to interrupt the president, even as chief of staff, unless it was some kind of emergency. But in this case, he did. said, Mr. President, this is a bad policy, and if you do so, I won't be able to continue in my position. Secretary of State Schultz immediately concurred and said the same thing. You'll have to find yourself a new Secretary of State. I'm not going to submit to a polygraph test. The policy was abandoned. The idea was likely the genesis of Bill Clark, Reagan's second national security advisor, a rancher from California, old political friend, sometimes called the judge because he had been a superior court judge in California. Clark, writing in his memoirs, said later that the, he knew the leaks were going on. He suspected James Baker was behind them. The purpose of those leaks was to control the president and to get the president to abandon a policy by suffering embarrassment in the press, thus controlling the president. He knew Baker was the leaker. Baker, to this day, denies that. 
Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Clark was a strong anti-communist, defender of Reagan's Central American policy of supporting the Sandinistas, He felt strongly, even later in a 1999 memoir, that uh, they interviewed some former Sandinistas and felt that if not for Reagan's hard line in Central America, the communist movement would have been all the way down to the tip of Latin America. Reagan's tough talk froze the Soviet Union, who was going to help Nicaragua. Otherwise, would have happened. Reagan liked him. He was incredibly influential. He was also not afraid to speak his mind. He is somebody who had arrived not unlike Secretary Schultz, not unlike James Baker. They had arrived in the White House with long careers and weren't necessarily looking to prove anything in Washington, but may have had different ideas about the job. In staff meetings where the president wasn't there, that would be run by Baker. It was very common when Bill Clark was national security advisor to raise the point. Has this been raised with the president? Even Nancy Reagan, who sometimes was critical of people who had been in the administration, whether they served her husband and might've been more critical with some of the more conservative members did feel that Clark was always loyal. Thus Bill Clark was Reagan's choice to go to France Now, France at this time is run by socialist president Francois Mitterrand, socialist. France is one of those nations in the 1980s. Italy, Spain among them. Some political groups within the UK and Germany as well who wanted to 
have better trade relations and more closer to normalization with the Soviet Union. Look, at that time, the thinking was they've been around this long. We got to deal with them. It does us no good to just mount up for war all the time. Clark goes over there and has a tough face-to-face meeting with Mitterrand, talks about all the ways that he feels that statements that French are making are subverting the administration's Central American and Soviet policy. They argue about a pipeline that the Europeans desperately want to build, that at this time, early in his administration, Reagan's going to stall. He won't be able to stop it. That will flow oil from the Soviet Union into Europe, oil that they desperately want and that the Soviets desperately want to sell them. Clark gives them the tough message. If they don't cooperate, the U.S. would have to review their options, including the nuclear umbrella protection that they provide to France. Clark gets interesting because his brief career is interrupted because he has to clean up a situation in the Interior Department when... James Watt, who, by the mid of the first term, it's very obvious that polls are showing he's going to be a liability to the administration going into re-election, ends up making a joke that, as difficult as it is to believe, offends blacks, women, and the disabled in one sentence. Clark leaves this national security job, but McFarland takes over. But Clark's influence is still there. He's still someone Reagan's trusts. He's likely to have had an influence in something we'll talk about later. Meanwhile, at the UN, Jean Kirkpatrick was in the seat as ambassador. She was an unlikely choice because she was actually a Democrat and did not have any diplomatic career at all. She was a professor of political science, and she impressed the president with a 1979 article that she wrote. It was called Dictatorship and Double Standards. Its main point was it was wrong to equate right-wing dictatorships with left-wing ones. Traditional authoritarian dictatorships were less repressive than revolutionary autocracies. She attacked the U.N. for malicious attacks upon the character of the United States. And countries that voted against the United States again and again, she made sure to send their voting records to Congress. The strong hint being, remember this when you're voting for foreign aid. More than any U.N. ambassador, Jean Kirkpatrick had access to the president and And sometimes the people who were cabinet secretaries above that position didn't like it very much. Reagan liked the tough talk. Said to her, you're taking the kick me sign. You're taking the kick me sign off the U.S.'s back at the U.N. And so a decade that had fragmented and disarrayed the politics of America, that had made voters afraid, scared was responded to with an administration that had no problem pushing the envelope, changing the conversation, introducing new priorities, ignoring others, 
Uh, but the president himself was certainly part of this conversion. It wasn't just his staff. He made a few odd steps, wanting to trade with Taiwan or improve relations with Taiwan, totally against U.S. policy at the time. He was talked out of that by both Haig and Schultz. Lashing out against the USSR, goes in international meetings, were initially not impressive. He goes to meet the G7 in 1981. The French president says he's smiling the most, speaking the least. The Canadian president, a fellow named Trudeau, felt that his comparisons to his fights against communism in his Actors Union Guild was not apt to the world stage. Indira Gandhi was insulted when he praised capitalism in her socialist country. The Tanzanian president had to correct Reagan when Reagan said that Tanzania's agriculture was subsidized. He pointed out that the U.S. had the most subsidized farming in the world. He used bright phrases like, communists would be in San Diego if we didn't support the government of El Salvador. And he made a few gaffes. He indicated it was good to be in Bolivia. He was in Brazil, uh, he said, with a showman's timing. That's where I'm going next. He wasn't. He was going to Colombia. According to uh, Paul Bowler, who writes uh, Presidential Anecdotes, really cool book, uh, like most of his predecessors in the White House, Reagan committed a fair number of gaffes while he was president. He greeted prizefighter Sugar Ray Leonard and Mrs. Leonard as Sugar Ray and Mrs. Ray, called Liberia's President Samuel Doe Chairman Moe and addressed Oklahoma Senator Don Nichols as Don Rickles. Called Paul Neitz, his arms control negotiator, Ed Neitz, and welcomed HUD Secretary Samuel Pierce at one gathering as Mr. Mayor. He was HUD Secretary. When the Prince of Wales and his wife Diana attended a White House dinner, Reagan introduced them as the Prince of Wales and his lovely lady, Princess David. The ballerina sitting next to actor Peter Ustinov gasped, What? Did he really say Princess David? Don't worry, Peter Ustinov whispered back. He's just thinking about next weekend at Camp Diana. Oh, yet despite some of this silliness there, the administration had orchestrated a great change in theme as 81 turned to 82, 82 turned to 83. And you could probably tell this program, this is a, a dual program here. This is one of the episodes of A Dozen Ronald Reagans, a series that I started in January of last year, of 2016. And it's uh, taken a lot longer. It's a big subject. <laughs> Obviously, though, we're always talking about history as compared to the politics of today. So one of the things that I felt was important to do is present the shockwave the 1980 and 1981 was for so many Americans. Not all of them. Not all of them, because obviously there were a great many supporters who were cheering the president on. But it was an absolute shockwave, I believe, for a lot of people watching on their televisions. And I think it's important to kind of have that phenomenological experience of, of what things might have been like 
so that we don't think that in the years before a smartphone, uh, you know, nothing could shock you. I also think that if one looks at the early years of the administration, 81, 82, 83, compares it with the later years, there's great differences in a lot of different ways. I mean, some are going to be good, some are going to be bad. Some of them are going to lead down to the path of Iran-Contra and the poor choice to move from Baker as chief of staff to Reagan as chief of staff, which we talked about in the past. But there's also going to be a real transformational change. And that early impression, that shockwave of 1981, right after the election, didn't always represent who was there, even by Reagan's reelection. You had Haig in place. You had Clark first in state spot and then in national security. But he's out by the time of the reelection. Haig's well gone. Schultz is very different. Might be useful information for someone watching a White House today, right? There's going to be changes. And it's worthwhile to look at first what's happening in the Soviet Union. And of course, an examination of Reagan's first term is difficult because some of the Soviet <laughs> the Soviet Union's leaders are dying during his term. There's literally three of them that die. Brezhnev, who had been leader since 68, then and drop off and then Chernenko. So in, in the space of four years, he has three different leaders to contend with, and he's not going to get Gorbachev until after his second term. Unless there's some kind of secret spy mission that we're not aware of that Reagan pulled off, that's not something on his zone of control. And so there is a, a point to make here. If Reagan had been merely a one-term president, if he was out in 1984, he would not have any impact on the Cold War whatsoever and would not have moved anyone on the Soviet side, and there would have been no discussions between him or a member of the Soviet uh, leadership. So I think it's useful in evaluating Reagan's role in the Cold War, something we're going to talk about more in the next episode. It's useful to look at the Soviet reaction to some of his policies, and it's mixed. But always there's statements in reaction to the harsh talk that's coming from the White House. There are statements that he's trying to disarm the Soviet Union to get us to drop our nuclear weapons in the face of this huge U.S. arsenal. Others is that, and this is an attempt to appeal to some of the non-aligned nations of the world, some of the European nations that had socialist governments, Reagan's trying to equate communism and socialism and ban socialism as well. This particularly happens after Reagan's speech in Florida, where he equates the Soviet Union with the equal evil empire. So it shouldn't be seen that Reagan's making the, the increases in spending new missiles and is engaging in this harsh talk or that uh, Haig is turning the limo around and the Soviets responding with, oh, my God, we were wrong. We're going to stop. Reagan also makes some other outreaches, some that were not known at the time. Like he writes a letter to Brezhnev. He ends up writing a letter to Andropov, too. Both of these letters are not very well received. So even that kind of backdoor policy that he attempts, that personal negotiation, you know, part of it is we get it. He didn't find his man yet in Gorbachev. But the initial approaches of this early administration are not yet working. 
It's not the complete story, obviously, of Reagan in the Cold War, because he's going to have a very productive second term, which we'll discuss in the next episode. But I think it's something that's important to consider. Very often in history, we only consider the end. If he didn't get another four years, this could have just been a a four-year flash in the pan and an experiment with kind of of smash-mouth superpower rhetoric that went nowhere. What the president proposed this evening could lead to one of the most radical turnabouts of our time in strategic nuclear policy, and we will spend most of this broadcast trying to put that extraordinary proposal into some kind of perspective. Martin Anderson, domestic affairs director in the White House, uh, remembered visiting NORAD with then-Governor Reagan in 1979 when he asked Air Force General James Hill, what could NORAD do in the case of a missile attack? Hill responded, NORAD could track a missile 10 to 15 minutes before it's hit and warn civil authorities there. That's it. Reagan said to Anderson later, we've spent all that money and all that equipment and there's nothing we can do to keep a nuclear missile from hitting us. Indeed, it wasn't a new statement. He had said the same to campaign aide Stu Spencer in 1980. He said similar things on Pat Robertson's religious TV show when he said we might be the generation that could see Armageddon. We talked about it, episode five of Dozen Ronald Reagan's How at this 1976 GOP convention, he gets an opportunity to give a rousing speech, maybe attack the Democrats to support the Ford campaign. And he talks about the elimination of nuclear weapons at a GOP convention. So the signs were all there, perhaps, that one should have expected something, and probably in Reagan's very first term. In fact, the 1980 platform calls for something strange that probably wasn't noticed, a defense system against nuclear missiles in the 1980 GOP platform. So it could be said Reagan was just acting to fulfill his political promise when he pursued the issue in meetings with national security advisors and the Joint Chiefs. No advisor ever gave him the indication that any defensive missile system was available at present time. There were theoretical premises, papers written about lasers shooting down missiles, things like that, always with big problems in terms of accuracy, in terms of the technology not even being available. Uh, it was theoretical because all of it was based on assumptions that new technologies would be invented that weren't there yet. All of this discussion, 1981, and going into 1982, had taken place behind closed doors. But a few setbacks may have propelled Reagan to change that. December 8th, 1982, a proposal for a dense pack of 100 MX missiles. These would be missiles that would be fired together in one. It was laughed at by most defense experts. And at this time, in December 1982, Reagan's popularity on the decline, the House votes it down 245 to 176, a major defeat on military 
policy for an administration that had put so much effort into military issues. So Reagan plans a speech on military spending the next March, March 23rd, 1983. After another House vote, in which the House also snipped at Reagan's spending plans, a drop-in was added to that speech. And this was it. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack? It shocked a lot of people because even Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, didn't know about the drop-in. Nor did the Secretary of Defense. Secretary of State Schultz was told minutes before the airing. The Joint Chiefs knew of it, and they knew there had been abstract discussions. Yet the Strategic Defense Initiative, labeled SDI, became a $60 billion program and would come to dominate U.S.-Soviet relations and discussions. Because it was so futuristic based on theoretical premises only, it was pretty easy to call the program by the popular name it's enjoyed, Star Wars. Uh, Lou Cannon, Reagan's biographer, writes, More than any other program, SDI was a product of Reagan's imagination and his priorities. Another president might have proposed income tax reduction or an increase in the defense budget. No other prominent American was talking about a space shield. Thomas C. Reed, president's friend both in California and Washington. Few of the Washington planners understand what was behind the Strategic Defense Initiative. Few understand that SDI was religion-based. He had told us during the campaign, Armageddon could happen on my watch. Reagan thought it was simply wrong to accept mutually accepted destruction. Millions of deaths as a given. This concludes episode nine of A Dozen Ronald Reagan. This is kind of an unplanned episode, but I, I think it's the the Trump presidency and just having an election in 2016 at all, it threw off the timing a little of this uh, Dozen Ronald Reagan series. The good news is I think I'll actually get to a dozen episodes of A Dozen Ronald Reagans because we're going to do Cold War in episode 10. I'm going to probably do a question and answers, and then we're going to do the conclusion in 12. I'll probably rerun the whole thing sometime in the summer, and then we'll finish it up at some point. Very important, the next episode is gone. I'm very excited because we're going to have Thomas Oliphant, a PBS News uh, Hour contributor, a Boston Globe columnist, Pulitzer Prize winner. He wrote a book about JFK and his run for the presidency. You know, we always think about JFK as a 60s figure. He only lived three years in the 1960s. So this is a book about JFK in the 1950s and what he did to become president. So important. And uh, honored to have him as a guest. And we're going to do that interview next. So stay tuned. Website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. 
premium podcast there is available. You want to talk to me on Twitter, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. Thanks a lot for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.